Nice. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Welcome to Redemption Flagstaff. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Would you guys give it up for Anna? She's a killer intern. Wow. That was, that was legitimately the best applause anyone has ever gotten here. Like even Jesus. Like Jesus is a little jealous right now. Anna, good job, whatever you're doing. So hey, my name, I already did that, uh, but where are we at? Okay, so we are in the Gospel of John, and so let's turn there. Um, I have a plan at the end of the sermon, so I'm going to try and go quick today, because I'm going to invite you guys to take part in something. And so um, I want to say this on the front end, uh, I want you to know how much I like just absolutely love Sunday mornings. Being able to worship with you all, being able to hear from God's word. November 1st, we'll be moving back inside. And so we've got uh, three Sundays from today. We'll be back inside on November 1st, 10 a.m., just the one service. We'll be sharing kind of uh, precautions and things and measures we're going to be taking. So stay tuned for those. Uh, but that is the plan. And so uh, begin preparing for that. That also means that over the next two Sundays, there's a chance it could be chillier than it is today, and so make sure you come with a jacket or a blanket or something like that. If it is colder, we're still going to have service unless it's snowing, and then we will not have service. We had a couple people this week ask, they're like, hey, you guys are still going to do service if it's snowing, and I just looked at them and said no politely, okay? We will not have service if it's snowing, okay? So just FYI. Um, but we will plan, even if it's a bit chilly, we're going to try and have service. Uh, it's windy like this, we're going to have service. Communion's flying everywhere, we're going to have service. That's just the beauty of what we get to do for the next couple Sundays. So again, November 1st, we're back inside. But again, I just love being with you this morning. Uh, when I get ready Sunday mornings, I get ready, get, you know, uh, kids kind of wake up about the same time as me. Verity, she gets her little beauty sleep, she gets a lot of that. That made her sound lazy, I meant to mean she's really beautiful. Uh, <laughs> And so, so she's sleeping, and what happens is my boys, they come to see me off. Every time I leave the house, they come out to the front of the driveway, and they stand in the middle of the road, super safe, and then they just wave until I get to the bottom of my street, and I'm waving out the window so they can hear me. So the windows are down, I'm saying, bye, and then I hear them go, bye, and it gets quieter and quieter. The best part, though, is is that every time I drive down my street, there's at least one neighbor who's randomly in their front yard that thinks I'm waving bye to them. And it's super awkward. Now, I don't feel awkward almost ever. And I didn't this morning when this happened with a new neighbor as well. I stopped, I explained the situation, and then now they say hi to my kids. But this is kind of my send-off every morning. But I was thinking about this as I thought through the text this morning about God's love. Because we're going to look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now that love is a beautiful thing. And my hope is, is that when we leave today, we're going to take a verse and a passage that most of us here know. And I don't want to pretend that everyone here is a Christian or you've been in the church long enough to know that John 3.16 is kind of like the verse of the Bible. But for the rest of us that do, there they go, don't even worry about it, guys. Oh man, there goes a lot of stuff. If someone, if someone gets speared by a flying easy up, I'm sorry in advance. But John 3.16, we're kind of trying to learn and move us all to this place where John 3.16 is not just something that's simple for us to recite or simple for us to know, but it's more so something that the church truly abides in daily. 
that is transformative about the way you and I live our lives, the way we view ourselves, the way we view each other, the way we view God. And so let's not let this verse just be something where we say, well, I know what this says, so let me check out. It's far deeper than anything that we can think of. Now, if you haven't been around, the Gospel of John is a documentary about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as told to us by his best friend, the Apostle John. Now, over the uh, last week and this week, we're looking at kind of part one and part two of an interaction between Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, and a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the members of the ruling elite of the religious class called the Pharisees. And so he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night seeking to learn more. He comes asking, Jesus, I've seen the signs. You must be doing something right. And Jesus calls him to something far greater than just signs and invites him into the family through being born again. Of which Nicodemus responds, that seems crazy, entering into my mother's womb and being birthed again sounds good for nobody, okay? That's not an indictment on birth, just an indictment on birthing a 160-pound baby. And so in the midst of this, there's confusion from Nicodemus. What do you mean I must be born again? And Jesus presses into Nicodemus and says that you must have a new identity created in me. That when you come to me, when you look to me, not only will you be saved, but you will be made new. A new creation will come from being part and adopted into the family of God. Now, Jesus tells us last week that the way we do that, the way that's accessed is by looking to him. And he shares a story from the book of Exodus that draws us there. We don't have time to go over it this morning. He's going to double down now in this passage, now, there's some debate about if this passage is the continuing on of the words of Jesus or if this is the Apostle John's commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nico. There's, it doesn't necessarily matter. If you really care, I'm in camp two. I think this is the Apostle John's commentary on the conversation. doesn't really matter. The content's the same. Let me start with John 3.16. Let us read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the best news ever. There is not a better line, a better story to be told, a better thing to be shared than John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Max Lucado says this about this passage. It is a 24-word parade of hope beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, always return here. That this is a central, central piece to what does it mean for us to follow Jesus and be formed by him. Now, you might remember a football player by the name of Tim Tebow. Show of hands. Anybody know that guy? Yeah, everybody knows Tim. Okay. Quarterback for the Florida Gators. That's when I hated him because he played my LSU Tigers, defeated us every time. But then he went on to play for the Denver Broncos in the NFL, was a very outspoken Christian. Prior to one of his playoff games, you might remember this. He wears eye black underneath his eyes, what quarterbacks do to reduce glare. And on it, he decided to write a verse. And he wrote John 3.16. Okay? Now, the way he tells the story is pretty phenomenal. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I'll tell you this. 
that after that football game, Google shared that, that, uh, that John 3.16 was Googled 90 million times, okay? 90 million times people entered in John 3.16 to navigate what that was. Now, what you would hope would happen was that the following Sunday, 90 million people would flood the church hearing the greatest news ever told. Oh my gosh, you're telling me that God loves me? You're telling me that God came to save me? You're telling me that God's promised me an eternal hope, not an eternal condemnation? This is the best news ever. Where can I learn more? There was no spike in church attendance across the country the following week. And it's verses 17 through 21 that I think give us the answer why. And so we're going to talk about that. We'll circle back to 16. Because the good news becomes good news when we realize the bad news. When you really understand the depth of the brokenness and the depravity and the pain and what we've done to each other and to God, all of a sudden 16 seems like good news. And so let's look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now we have a few problems, a few things that we see wrongly, that that even those 90 million people that would Google that and have really no real response, and obviously we're not with all those 90 million, so we don't know what was going on in their hearts or in their lives. But in general, Humanity has a few things that they see, wrong, they see wrong with Jesus. And the first one is they don't know who Jesus is. And we learn in verse uh, 17, uh, 17 here is that Jesus is what? Sent from God. And oftentimes our culture tends to think of Jesus as kind of just this next really great teacher. This really good dude that came about 2,000 years ago. He did some nice stuff. He pushed love on people. But he wasn't anything special. He was likened to a Gandhi, Right? or a Mother Teresa, or any of the other great kind of humanitarians throughout time. He was just another one of those in kind of the long line of people that did good work here on earth. And so that's who Jesus is. And so they've subjugated him to this smaller role than actually who he is. They don't know. He is sent by God, God in the flesh, God incarnate. The second thing that they don't know is that they have a wrong idea of why he came, because it says that he came not to condemn the world but to save it. And so there's two things here. I think they can either say, yep, God bless you. I wonder if that was a positive honk or a negative honk. You think positive? No? You think positive? It's like 50-50, okay. It's like when you see all the protests downtown, you honk if you like it, I think. That's what they do. So we're going to take that as a positive affirmation. Thanks, Spirit of God. Okay. They can think wrongly about why he was sent. They think that he came to be a buzzkill, right? So like, oh yeah, he's a good guy, but he also came to just stifle fun. That's why Jesus came. He came to just enact a religion that's going to be oppressive, that's going to stifle what I want to do, take away my freedom, and tell me what's wrong with my life. It's not what Jesus came to do, but it's what we believe. The second one is not necessarily wrong, just very incomplete. It's that he came to teach and to love, but not to save. Because salvation would necessitate a reason why you had to be saved. You're not saved unless you're hanging off the cliff. 
If you're just hiking on the trail, no one saved you if they brought you back to the car. But if you're hanging off the cliff with one hand and no rope to support you and someone comes and pulls you off of that cliff, it's a different situation. You owe that person your life. That person has saved you. So oftentimes our culture, they look at Jesus like, okay, that's, that's great, good person, but to save me would have to mean I would have to reckon with I had a reason I needed to be saved. And we don't like that. We don't enjoy being told we're not great. It's becoming more and more true, this, this giant pushback against criticism. And I think what's happening underneath it all is that truly the enemy, I think Satan uses that to then allow us to sit in a place of comfort that never needs us to look for anything beyond ourselves. So why even look to Jesus? I'm fine in and of myself. He goes deeper in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We have a wrong idea of who we are as humanity. The pervading reality is oh, we're all pretty good. The biblical reality is no, we're all pretty bad. To the point that God, in His Word, consistently will tell the people, will tell humanity, you're condemned already. Now, we're not condemned, what? Because Jesus condemned. We're condemned because our sin condemns us. In other words, think about it like this. When someone's committed a crime, the law is just, the judge is, let's just say the judge is a just judge, and the law is a just law, okay? And someone commits a crime against that law, he stands before that judge. Never for a moment would you blame the judge for passing along the sentence, you blame the perpetrator. Well, they committed the act. This isn't the judge's fault. They didn't force them to commit the act. This is the reality. That humanity is condemned because of our sin. Because we have committed evil acts. The Bible says wicked things. That sounds so heavy. Like, good morning, have a good Sunday. Like we've really forayed into bad news territory here. You're evil. <laughs> Again, like Merry Christmas. The Word of God consistently will point to humanity as being broken and fallen. I think it's easier sometimes for us to wrap our minds around that when we begin to think about others, right? Like, okay, well, no, they, they do evil things. 
There's evil things happening in our country. There's evil things happening in our world. That person betrayed me. They're evil. They do wicked stuff. We can, we can sense some, we can sniff a bit of the evil when we look to others. It's, it's a lot harder to be able to sniff the evil in ourselves. It's a difficult thing to realize the depths of what the scriptures point us to. And this is not a new reality for humanity. And hear me, I know some of this stuff, for many of you, you're like, yeah, no, I've heard this. Some of you are, you're reformed to your core. You're like, dude, I've been, do- I've been total depravity since like, you know, 88. But does it have a daily influential impact on your life? Does it drive us to confession? Does it drive us to praise after the confession because we realize the goodness of John 3.16? Every morning when I drive to church here on Sunday mornings, I get in the car, I wave bye to the boys, and as soon as I turn the corner, it's pretty much confession from that moment till the moment I get here. For like 15, 20 minutes, Depending on how the week went, I got to pull over for a while. Because I tell you, once you start really delving in, when you start doing the surgery, you start finding more and more stuff. You know, I didn't, I didn't love Verity the way I should have this week. For those of you, that's my wife, for those of you who don't know. I was harsh with my kids. I had significant anger in my heart about three different situations this week. And two of them, I let rest there for a while and simmer. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that if there is anger in your heart towards a brother, you've committed murder against that man or woman. Again, this is not meant to be a bummer. It's meant to expose the reality of who we are. The other day, I was uh, doing silly things with uh, cutting stuff. And you're not supposed to cut, right, like this, through something towards your hand. I just got a new set of Cutco knives. They are sharp, okay? There's a couple dealers here in the church. If anyone's in, you know, interested, let me know. Okay. <laughs> that dealer sounds so like, yeah, not that kind of dealer. They're just slinging knives. You got any knives? Um, so I go to cut this, separate this thing that was frozen, you know, like two patties. They were like, they were cheese puffs. Man, this is embarrassing. And so <laughs> separate cheese puffs because I'm on a diet. And... I go to split them open with the cuckoo knife. It slides through those, cuts my finger. Slices pretty much from the nail all the way around, about a half inch deep. Yeah. There was a lot of blood, okay? And then a lot of super glue. Now, underneath the Band-Aid, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. That if I didn't take care of it, can get infected, you could lose your finger, you could die, right? This is just, you guys understand science. 
I think it's really easy for the church to do exactly what, what John the Apostle is trying to call out to the church. That deep down there's just a reality of sin. It's there. We're not who we're supposed to be. We're not Jesus. And so what we do is we hide it. We cover it up with a Band-Aid. And if we do not address it, it will destroy us from the inside out. If we come here and we hear a text like this and say, yeah, 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 I get my sin, that's fine. We're missing the gifts that Jesus gives to us, that John gives to us, that tells us, no, we're far more sick than we realize. We're far more prone to sin than we realize. We're far more prone to hate than we realize, and oppression than we realize, and slander, and on and on and on. It is in us because we are not on the other side of heaven. The Bible talks about this and this beautiful reality for the church that we are now newly created in the Spirit of God. But while that's true, we have a flesh that continues to war against that Spirit. One of the shocking, not, shocking is not the right word, one of the realities of the last six months engaging in a variety of different conversations and sitting down with so many people inside and outside the church. One of the best possible things that we can do in our witness is to stop admitting that we're perfect. Or stop pretending, rather. That's probably the way to say it. It's okay that we are blemished. It's okay that the church has failed. It's okay that we've screwed up. But continuing to not acknowledge it does nothing for the healing. John 3.16 is not good news to a church that doesn't think that 17 through 21 is true for it. And so he's calling this out. Now, <clears throat> in this work, Jesus comes in. John tells us that he is the light of the world that has now come in. He's broken into the darkness. And now light shines upon the world because the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It is a beautiful reality. And yet in the midst of that reality, there's still the pain, the brokenness, and the sin that we see. You begin to ask yourself, how, how could that be? Leslie Newbegin, one of my favorite authors, pastors, he was a missionary in India for years and years. He talks about this reality that when the light breaks into any situation, what is created and what's created is a shadow. That right now underneath your easy ups, right, this giant wall that has become a favorite seating place for many, okay, a giant shadow is cast when the light comes into the world and there are various Buildings, easy-ups, metaphorically, that cast wide shadows for us to hide behind. One of them is religion. One of them is this belief that if we're good enough, that if we can prove ourselves to one another, 
we can hide behind this reality. We don't need our sin to be exposed because I'm a good church attender. I'm a good Christian when the world looks at it, right? I, I, I do the church attendance, I tithe, I check all the boxes that most of the world would think defines a believer. And we can hide behind that and never let our sin come to the fore. It's not difficult to fake it. There's other shadows that are cast, I think, by the different idolatries and things that we've propped up in our world, things like money and status. Okay, well, this, this money thing, like I, I'm secure, I'm content, I have everything I need. And so we prop up these big walls that we can hide behind those. Look, life is great. Social media, Instagram, Facebook, a curated picture of your life is just another wall that's propped up that we can hide behind. So everyone would look and say, no, they got it all together. If anything has proven true over these last six months, no one has it together. When pressed, impurities come out. The question becomes is where this text and every text in Scripture is trying to drive us to, in the midst of that deep reality, we should go to one place, and that's Christ. And nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will do outside of Him. So many times I think the rejection of Christ has little to do with what's true. It just has everything to do with what we want. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, he has this thing where every time someone, it's like another pastor or a leader in their church or something like that, where they, uh, they say, hey, I think I'm leaving the church. I'm having kind of massive faith crises and things like that. He always asks them, okay, well, who is it that you want to sleep with? And what he's trying to drive at was it what sin has so compelled you that you would sacrifice the truth? What thing has so gripped your eyes the way Eve's eyes were gripped by the fruit in the garden that you would, like she did and he did, Adam, abandon what was true so that they could then fulfill their desires? The question comes to us of like, what are we hiding? And we got to stop. Because Jesus and the gospel will never seem that good to you. If the sin and the brokenness and the deceit remain hidden. Jesus wants to expose all of that. And it's difficult and hard, but in the midst of the surgery, there is actual healing and restoration to be had. One more quote from Keller, if I might. This is in a book, Meaning of Marriage. And uh, honestly, whoever you are, whatever age, whatever your story is, you should probably read it. It's phenomenal. But he talks about love, and I want this to drive us to where we land now. He says this, when over the years, uh-oh, everybody okay? Good, Colonel. 
says this, when over the years someone has seen you at your best and at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and all your flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a complete experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. That the love of God fully knows you. Fully. There's literally not a thing you've done or doing right now, thinking, feeling, or will ever do, feel, or think that he does not know about. And in that, he loves you. But we trade in the beauty and the opportunity for the apex and perfection of love when we, when we hide. When we keep our sin buried, hidden behind the metaphorical walls that cast shadows with the present light of Christ in the world, we miss out on the deep, abiding affection and love that God has for his people. The Bible says it like this, that sin separates us from, from God. I implore you guys and myself, we need to recapture the beauty of confession. The beauty of coming before our Lord and laying everything out there. The second step to that is bringing it to safe people around you that will consistently point you to continue in that path and point you to verses like John 3.16 that reminds us that even with how wretched and evil we are, God so loved the world that he would sacrifice his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The good news gets gooder the more we embrace the bad news about truly the depths of how broken we are again that might not be shockingly a new idea for many of you i think by knowledge we've somewhat ascertained yeah that makes sense i can get my mind wrapped around that i've heard that before that's not new has it moved us to a place of confession in a place of honesty, in a place of stopping the hiding so we can actually get the help and God's love that we need. A few things about John 3.16 as we close. A beauty for this verse, as it would have been communicated by the Apostle John here, is that now Jesus' love extends far beyond Israel. And now it is for all. Apparent to the world now. That God's love extends to all nations, all tribes, all people, all tongues. 
That love is for everybody. Not reserved for the elite. Not reserved for one class, one people group, one color, one whatever. It's for the world. <coughs> and belief is the key to that salvation. John 3.16 could have gone a few different ways. It could have been, for God so loved the world <laughs> that he will help those who help themselves. It could have been, right, well, okay, if you do a little bit, I'll, I'll come alongside you. We'll work together in this. He doesn't do that. For God so loved the world that he doesn't care what you believe. Just maybe be sincere in it. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he told humanity, just be a good person and I'll accept you. He says, for God so loved the world that he sacrificed himself and that the only, only, only key to access that is belief. It's to follow Jesus. That is good news in a world that is constantly telling you and I to do better. That we could be secure in the love of Christ that's accessed through what he's done, not what we've achieved. Again, these are gospel realities that are just so obvious to the church, right? But I fear they haven't embedded themselves in the way they must necessarily be for all of us that we would continue to remain faithful until the end, as Paul says. <clears throat> Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night. Out of the darkness, he approached the light to seek to know more. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know you are so deeply loved by this church and by the people here. But our love for you pales in comparison to that of Christ himself. And I would implore you in the same way that most of the folks here did, and I did some 15 years ago now, to please come out of the darkness and hiding and come to Jesus and learn more. And to ask questions and to deeply know the love of Christ that fully knows you and wants to fully love you. If that's your story, I'm not going to have you stand up right now, I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but if that's your story, would you talk to us, come up to the connect desk, talk to someone that's around here. If it ends up being another person in your exact same shoes, then you two can come up together. It would be great. For the Christian, stop the hiding. Come out of the darkness. Come to Jesus. Be exposed in your sin because in it, as difficult as it may be, love awaits. Healing awaits. We land here with a reading from Revelation 21 and 22. Because you can't get away from the beautiful reality that what you get here in John 3.16 is not just victory and salvation and a promise of life here, but one hereafter. That eternity awaits all those 
who are in the family of God, who by the love of Christ, by the death of Christ, by the resurrection of Christ have been saved. This is the promised destination. And Revelation 21 verse 1 says this, and please soak in the imagery, even if you've heard this a hundred times, it should not get old for us. It says, I saw heaven and earth new created, gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, gone the sea. I saw holy Jerusalem, new created, descending resplendent out of heaven, as ready for God as, as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a voice of thunder from the throne, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people, he's their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone, crying gone, pain gone. All the first order of things gone. And he continued, look, I'm making everything new. Moving forward to verse 21. There was no sign of a temple for the Lord God, the sovereign strong, and the Lamb, Jesus, are the temple. The city doesn't need sun or moon for light. God's glory is its light. The lamp, the Lord, is its lamp. The nations will walk in its light and the earth's kings bring in their splendor. Its gates will never be shut by day. And there won't be any night. They'll bring the glory and honor of the nations to the city. Nothing dirty or defiled will get into the city. And no one who defiles or deceives, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will get in. Then the angel showed me water of life river, crystal bright, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, right down the middle of the street. The tree of life was planted on each side of the river, producing 12 kinds of fruit, a ripe fruit for each month. The leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. Never again will things be cursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb is at the center. His servants will offer God's service, worshiping. They'll look upon His face, their foreheads mirroring God. Never again will there be any night. No one will need lamplight or sunlight. The shining of God, the Master, is all the light anyone ever needs. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Give us new eyes, new ears, new hearts, and new minds, God, to be able to hear your word, to hear a verse as famous as, as John 3.16, and realize it is attached to other news. God, that the good news is that though we were enemies, though we were in sin, you still loved us. Though we mocked you and beat you and killed you, you pleaded from the cross, forgive us, Father. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Lord, we repent and we confess that we are sinful. That we hurt the people that we love the most.
that we hurt people that look different, act different, are different. But Jesus, you invite us to a better way. And that is access through just believing in you. And so I pray for our church and for the church in our city to have a renewal of a deep abiding love and understanding of what you've done for us in the midst of our sin and brokenness. Jesus, we really need you. Forgive us, Lord. Lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the resurrection. Grant new life to us that we would walk faithful. We love you, God. Amen.